Hello there, my friend, and welcome to another episode here on the Yours Truly podcast. You are currently listening to episode 144. My name is Claire Tuning. I am your host. If you hadn't already pieced that together, I am also a non-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. This would normally be the place in the intro where I talk about my love for food puns and or peanut butter and jelly, but for the sake of spicing things up, let's talk about something different. So I have really been enjoying Billie Eilish's new song. I think it's a full album she put out, but more specifically the song Happier Than Ever and then also NDA, especially Happier Than Ever in the last like two-ish minutes of the song. If you are looking for something to just completely jam out to, it's like a breakup anthem, but I feel like anyone can jam along to the song. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Uh, this, This is a nutrition and an intuitive eating podcast, but sometimes I start off our episodes with things that have absolutely nothing to do with what we're here to talk about. But getting back on on track here, before I introduce today's guest, I am so excited to share the conversation that I had with her with all of you today. But before we get there, we are going to kick things off with our Yours Truly Goal Slayer featured post of the week. So if you are new to the show, this is a little segment that I do in the intro of every episode where I share a post that has been put up in the free private Facebook community that I run. I'll tell you a little bit more about the community and how you can join here in a couple of moments, but today's post uh, happened a couple of weeks ago, or it will have been a couple of weeks ago by the time this episode goes live, but it is from a previous client of mine, actually someone who I had the pleasure of working with over a year ago at this point. It might have almost been two years ago. I don't know, time runs together, especially when a year of that, a year plus of that has been in pandemic times. But I wanted to read this. It's a little bit of a a lengthier post, but I I think there's a lot of helpful information in here and you might find it to be uh, really reassuring and really hopeful, especially if you are newer to this process of healing your relationship with food. So she writes, Hi all, this might be a lengthy post, but I really wanted to share a little bit about my journey. I started intuitive eating in 2019. I had the chance to work with Claire in the beginning stages of this journey of mine, and I learned a lot from her and it was an amazing experience. I graduated with her, but I didn't leave knowing I was fully healed. Let me rephrase that. Sometimes when I read things out loud, it comes out sounding weird. I graduated with her, but I left knowing that I wasn't fully healed. There we go. And I knew it would take more time. I honestly didn't even know if this was meant for me. It felt like it was just taking so long. It had been a year and I was still on a spree of wanting to free myself from certain foods and I did not want many nutrient-dense items. I really wanted to fast forward and be at the gentle nutrition part of this process. Well, two years later and without even realizing, I am finally here. How freeing it has felt that I have been eating fruits and veggies without even realizing what I was doing because now it's just food. The relationship I now have with food makes me makes me want to tear, makes me want to cry, maybe, makes me want to cry. It holds no power over me anymore. 
If you feel stuck or like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, just know that there is no timeline. It can happen at any moment for anyone. It all just depends on how much you need to unlearn. There are something so freeing to me that my favorite food, french fries, and a veggie like broccoli now hold the same moral value. In all caps, who am I? We are all worth so much more than just our bodies. How we feel about ourselves is most important. Don't let the small things like how you look in a photo bring you down. We all have one life to live and let's damn well show up for ourselves. Rant over with four heart emojis. So I want to give a big shout out and a thank you to this community member and to this past client of mine for sharing a little bit of her journey, sharing some words that I know a lot of people in our community really resonated with, they found reassuring, and I am hopeful that hearing some of that is helpful for you. So if you would like to come and hang out in our community and read posts like this, there's also a lot of conversation around just intuitive eating topics in general, people will pop in and ask questions or share about an experience they had when they're looking for feedback. We do live videos every week. So if you think that would be valuable to your process of making peace with food, we would love to have you in our little corner of the internet. So the way that you can do that is by visiting my website, that is clairetuning.com slash community. Again, clairetuning.com slash community. That link will take you directly to a brief application that we will have you fill out. And once you submit it, my team and I will look over it and we will accept you into the community as soon as we can. Hope to see you there very soon. And without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce today's guest. So Virginia Soulsmith is the author of The Eating Instinct, Food, cult- food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. As a journalist, she has reported from kitchen tables and grocery stores, graduated from beauty school, and gone swimming in a mermaid's tail. Her work has appeared in New York Times Magazine, Harper's, Elle, and many other publications. She's also a contributing editor with Parents Magazine, a frequent contributor to the New York Times, and writes the newsletter Burnt Toast. Her next book, Fat Kid Phobia, is forthcoming in 2023. So if that bio that I just read about Virginia doesn't tell you enough about how big of a deal she is and how lucky we are to have her on the show, I don't know what will. But in today's episode, Virginia and I talk about the ways that fat phobia can show up in parenting, why a child's body size is not a problem that needs to be solved, and how parents can handle discussing their child's weight with medical professionals, family members, and a whole lot more. So I know that I, even as a non-parent, learned a ton from this conversation with Virginia, and I really hope that by the end of listening to today's episode, you will feel the same way. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Virginia Soulsmith. Enjoy! Hi, Virginia. Welcome to the Yours Truly podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Claire. Of course. I'm really excited to have you here. And like I told you before we hit record, I, uh, I'm going to selfishly ask you some questions that I've just been wondering for a long time. So I'm excited. Great. But uh, before we dive in, we are going to play a little bit of this or that. Are you ready? I'm ready. 
Physical books or audiobooks? Physical books, for sure. I'm a big physical book fan. I do like an audiobook, like on a road trip, but um, the local bookstore in my town can tell you I buy a lot of paper books. <laughs> <laughs> She's a regular. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm with you there. I like audiobooks. I, I can get through a book a lot faster if I'm mm-hmm. listening to it, but I feel like I retain the information better if it's in a physical book and I can make notes and, you know, turn down the pages to, to come back to things time after time. Exactly. And you can share them more easily. And yeah, there's just something about the physicality of it. And yeah, as a writer, I'm, I'm partial to it, although I am. Yeah. Not, I'm not anti-audiobook. Yeah. I, I hadn't considered that from the perspective of you being a human being who writes books that you mm-hmm. might actually prefer the, the kind that you can hold in your hand. This is a, a little bit of a question off to the side, but do you feel uh, like, I don't know, it helps the creation come to life more if you can actually hold it in your hands instead of just listening to it? Well, definitely when I get to a sort of, there's a certain point in my writing process where I always print out a draft and read it out loud to myself to sort of check the flow. And that's like when I do a lot of like nitty gritty editing. Um, And so I guess in that sense, it's kind of both because reading it out loud, you catch a lot of mistakes, Uh but physically holding it, you also are more engaged with it than when you're reading it on a computer screen, I find. So there is something about the like tactical experience. that's really helpful at that point. I bet. I am. I've never written a book, but uh, in my, my limited experience of like writing papers throughout school, I would always do the same. I'd always print it out and read for any corrections. I feel like mm-hmm. it's easier to catch things that way than, than reading it on a screen. Yeah. You just catch everything and, and you just hear things that you're like, oh, that's so hard to say. So it's obviously not really good writing. If it's that hard to like, if I can't make it through the sentence without pausing for breath, like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're prone to run on sentences, which I am. So yeah. yeah. Well, little did we know we were going to get a small writing and editing lesson in the first two minutes of our conversation. <laughs> Next one though, this is not related to books or writing but uh, are you more of a pancake or a waffle person? Ooh, pancakes. I guess because I don't own a waffle maker, so <laughs> I am limited in that way. But I like waffles when I'm out of restaurants. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of just a straight up pancake girl. Yeah, I. you're making me also realize that I do not own a waffle maker. My experiences with waffles tends to happen in the frozen section of a grocery store. I just buy them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Those are a staple for my kids for sure. We, although we, we did the frozen waffle thing for so long that my older kid is like really over them now, which is yeah. sort of sad. I mean, she'll come back around. They're delicious, but yeah. Give her a, give her a few months off of waffles and exactly. we'll come back. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> next one, a beach vacation or a mountain vacation? Oh, this is like the giant debate in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't even know what you're asking (laughs) Um, because my husband is a huge mountain person, mountain climber. I am a water person. And so our compromise is usually lake because if you're at a lake, you have like speech and swimming, but you're near mountains often. So we are big lake house vacation people. All right. So you said it was a debate, but it seems as though you all have come to a consensus, at least to a certain degree. We have we have worked it out. I mean, we do both as well. Like we do beach trips, we do mountain trips. But like yeah. when we're like, what is a whole family vacation that will have something for everyone? We land on lake. But I think probably he's like, why are we not somewhere colder and more difficult to get to? And I'm like, why is it not warmer and more tropical? <laughs> so, why don't I have sand in my yeah, toes? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I um I don't know if you're familiar. I, I told you before we hit record that I live in the state that is your name. So I live in right. Virginia and I grew up in Southwestern Virginia, really close to Smith mountain Lake. Oh I'm, wow! I'm not sure if you're familiar. It's, um, 
I don't know if it's the biggest lake in Virginia. No one quote me on that. Don't DM me. I'm not quite <laughs> sure if it's that, but um, it's uh, one of the most notable lakes here in Virginia. So growing up, I had a lot of lake experiences and you're so right that it you have the swimming experience and, you know, water sports, if you're into that, but in the context of a mountain backdrop rather than a right. So lakes, lakes are great. Yeah, they really uh, are. Two more. Next one, Facebook or Instagram? Oh, definitely Instagram. Um, I feel like I could just delete Facebook, except for I have a lot of like great aunts and extended family on there who want to see pictures of my kids sometimes. But yeah, professionally, it's all Instagram. And even personally, I'm doing mostly just Instagram these days. I'm with you there. Uh, Instagram just feels a little easier to use for some reason. Like I know Facebook was your first, but Instagram just feels easier to use. Yeah. Agreed. And final one, summer or winter? Summer, a thousand times summer. And I say this as someone who lives in a place with a very cold, long winter and I can enjoy it around the holidays and maybe for like one good snowstorm. And then it's just a rough slog from January to April um, when I'm waiting for it to be done and get to the good months. Yeah. And as we were talking about beforehand, I'm a big gardener and you can't garden in the winter if you live in um, the Hudson Valley because it's cold. So yeah, summer all the way. I have to say, out of all the questions that I asked you, you had the easiest time answering that when you didn't hesitate for even a second. Not for a second. No, there was no debate. (laughs) Well, thank you for being a a good sport and playing a little this or that. I feel like that's just a fun way to to get to know someone out of the context of who are you and what do you do? But that question is coming next. So for anyone who is not familiar with you, doesn't know your work yet, at least, would you mind offering us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do? Absolutely. So I am a journalist and my beat is diet culture and fat phobia, um, which is a beat I've sort of created for myself over the years. I actually got my start working in women's magazines where I wrote a lot of um, articles that were pro diet culture, um, looking back on them, but it was part of a whole learning experience and educating myself and kind of coming to a place of realizing that actually what I wanted to be doing was dismantling diet culture and fighting weight stigma Um in conversations around health and parenting. So those are the topics I write about as a journalist. Um, My work's been in the New York Times, Scientific American. I'm a contributing editor at Parents Magazine. So lots of different places. And then I'm also the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America, which came out in 2018. And I'm currently working on my next book. And I also write a Substack newsletter called Burnt Toast, where I answer people's questions about fat phobia, often as it comes up in the context of parenting or healthcare, since those are the areas I've done the most reporting on. Um, And yeah, so those are the the projects that are keeping me busy these days. I don't know how you do all of those things. It sounds like you spend a lot of time probably behind the computer, writing, answering questions, you know, doing all of that. And, And one of the things that you just mentioned, you mentioned that you do a lot of work in answering questions about fat phobia in the context of parenting. And that is really what I I wanted to have you on today to speak to, because as I I mentioned to you before we hit record, I do not have children, although I will receive questions from parents, you know, how do I navigate this or that? And I have to be really honest when I get those questions. And then I do not feel that I am the most equipped human being to handle these questions because I simply cannot speak from the experience of raising a child. So you are are filling a a really great void here. So I have a question for you that is probably a really loaded question. This is probably, I'm going to ask you this and you can just take it in whatever direction you deem fit. But um, 
fat phobia in parenting, how does it show up? Or what are maybe some examples you could give us if we have a listener who is like, have I contributed to any of this? Am I causing harm in my children? Like, how does this show up in general? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And the sad answer is we have almost all, anyone who's a parent has probably perpetuated fat phobia because we live in a culture that has drilled into us from the time we were young children, that fat bodies are less valuable, less worthwhile, and more unhealthy, et cetera, et cetera, than thin bodies. And because these messages are so baked into, you know, it's the water we're swimming in. It's very easy to perpetuate these stereotypes and negative beliefs about larger bodies um, without realizing we're doing it and in ways that are often very well-intentioned. A um, couple of ways I see this come up a lot in parenting. Number one, for parents who themselves grew up in bigger bodies and experienced bullying or teasing because of their weight, there is often a really understandable desire to protect their children from experiencing the same thing. Um, because of course, no one wants their children to be bullied, but the way we go about it is to try to control the child's body and make them smaller or control how they're eating, control how much they're exercising. And when we do that, we're reinforcing the bully's message. We're saying like, this world doesn't think your body's okay. And we agree. And we're going to help make your body okay, mm -hmm. which is exact opposite of what you want to be doing. What you want to be saying to your child is like, I see this, this is unfair. The way the world treats you, but I accept your body just the way it is. I don't think there's anything about you that needs to change, but you know, we're all working through, like, I don't want anyone to feel bad if they're listening and thinking like, Oh, yep, that's me <laughs> because we're, we all show up to parenting with this baggage and there's no manual. They don't hand out anything at the hospital. That's like, here, work on your body issues before you start talking to your kids about weight. I mean, right. it would be great, but it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so that's a big way I see it. Another way I see it showing up and something I struggled with myself is parents will often be very conscious that they're not going to say anything bad about their child's body. You know, they don't want to shame their child in any way, but if they're working through their own body stuff, they can verbalize that, you know, maybe your child sees you restricting what you're eating in certain ways, or your child hears you saying you don't like wearing a swimsuit or you don't want to wear some article of clothing because you don't feel good about how it looks on your body. And every time we kind of voice that or portray that in some way, we're reinforcing these messages to our kids that there's something wrong with our bodies. And maybe if our bodies are not okay, maybe there's something wrong with their bodies and kids, you know, kids absorb messages about their parents' bodies almost as directly as they absorb the messages about their own bodies. So that's another way I see this playing out. And it's certainly something I had a moment when my older daughter was around 18 months old and I'd said something to my husband at dinner of like, oh, I'm just not feeling really great about my body right now. And she was like, just starting to pick up words. And she started kind of patting her body going, my body, my body, my body. And I was like, oh, oh, she's going to literally hear everything I say about yeah, my body. Wow. I need to stop this. And I never, I, since then that was, she's almost eight now, you know, I have not said a negative thing about my body in front of either of my kids since then. Um, because I just realized how quickly they would adopt any language I had. And that is not easy to do because again, we all show up with this, with all this stuff internalized. And so there is a lot of work we have to do. Um, but those are, yeah, those are some really common ways. And then the, probably the third tier that's important to think about is for those of us raising kids in smaller bodies, thin bodies, um, however you want to define that, there's often a message of you can eat this because you're thin, or you have a free pass around this because you're thin. 
And that is inadvertently reinforcing fat phobia because you're making their eating habits or their exercise habits or all these other things about themselves contingent on them maintaining that thin body. And we know not all thin kids grow up to be thin adults. I was a thin kid and I'm not such a thin adult. You know, this is a very common and normal trajectory for human bodies. So we don't want our thin kids to think that their value is their body either. So yeah, these are kind of the main areas I see it showing up. Yeah. It's really interesting as you're listing off maybe some examples of things that a parent or a caregiver will say to a child. It reminds me of um, a lot of those, I don't know if meme is the right word, but those graphics where it's like, the iceberg. It's like the little part that you can see. And then underneath, it's like so much bigger than we could ever imagine. It's like when you maybe hear someone say, to use that last example, like you can eat this because you're thin or because you show up in a smaller body. We, we might think that is such a small passing comment, but what that Mm -hmm. implies is huge. As you just mentioned, Um, something that I'm realizing as you're describing all of this, I'm kind of thinking back over, you know, a lot of people who I've had the privilege of working with and some of the things that they share with me on their coaching application or even our first call together when I'm like, what's going on? You know, why are you reaching out for support in your relationship with food and body? And for anyone who I've worked with who has children, they usually mention a couple of things about how they have started to notice that my child is picking up on things that I have said about my body, or they're starting to replicate behaviors around Mm -hmm. food that I have, even if I didn't tell them to do that. It's just something that they're observing. So when you said earlier that, you know, kids are sponges and they will absorb not only things that we say verbally, but like our, our nonverbal cues as well. That's really evident to me in the work that I do with, with clients. And it's a lot of the reasons why I feel like some parents will reach out because they say, Ooh, like I really need to work on my relationship with food and body. Cause I can already see that I'm passing some of this down and I really don't want to do that any farther. So, um, one question that I, I have based off of a recent, recent-ish social media post that you shared, you were talking about, um, and please correct me if I misquote or I don't want to botch your words, but um, it was something along the lines of a child's body is not the problem. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more or explain a little bit more behind that post? Yeah. So I think... um... I'm trying to remember exactly which post you're referencing because um, I feel like that's sort of- <laughs> I should have had drum, it exactly pulled up. A drum I beat often. No, no, yeah. it's fine. Um, but I think what I was referencing there is, well, there's there's lots of ways we view our kids' bodies as the problem, right? Like, you know, a friend of mine was shopping for softball uniform for her nine-year-old who plays softball and her nine-year-old couldn't fit into the softball pants that they make because they only were selling slim fit softball pants, which is- something we can all sit with that children's softball pants would be labeled slim fit. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, she thankfully took the position of why are they not making clothes to fit my child's body? This is unacceptable. My daughter wants to play softball and she has every right to play softball and she should have a uniform that fits her body. But it's very easy in a moment like that because parents are told that our child's body is our responsibility, that it's our job as a good parent to have a thin child. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to see your child's body as the problem there and to say, like, we have to fix this. We have to solve their weight problem or their, you know, this issue and start to go down a very different path with it. 
And that's because we get so much pressure, especially as moms, but all parents, um, you know, there's so much pressure from the time babies are born. Are they born at a quote, healthy weight? How are they growing? Are they at a healthy percentile? And I'm using quotes around all of this because growth percentiles, like there's a hundred of them for a reason and any one of them is a healthy percentile to be. So, um, you know, but we get this message over and over that if our baby is getting too big, too fast, there's something wrong there. And it's on us because we are feeding them. We are raising them. We are somehow responsible for their size. And that is wrong. That is not how babies grow or children grow. We are in control of how we feed them. Yes. But how we feed them is just one tiny piece of the puzzle in terms of what their body is going to, what size their body is going to be or how they're going to grow. And what we need to do is pair how we're feeding them with this sort of loving, radical acceptance of their body and seeing their body as the really amazing, you know, amazing thing that it is versus seeing it as something we need to fix and address. And yeah, I think that message gets lost at the pediatrician's office. It gets lost at school. It gets lost in mom groups. I mean, it's just, it's a hard message to hold on to. Mm-hmm. One, um, one question that I have kind of building off of that, and this even relates to something that you were saying earlier, I was smiling as you were giving this example earlier, because I had this in my mental list of questions that I, I wanted to ask you, but, um, I work mostly with adults. I have worked with a, a couple of teens before. And of course, whenever we're working with a teen or anyone under the age of 18, we're always in communication with the parent on, you know, what we're doing, what we're covering in session, how we can be on the same page. And I've had multiple parents voiced to me what you were sharing earlier um, about the bullying aspect, right? Of, I don't want my child to be subject to mean-spirited kids at school. I don't want them to be picked on because of their body size. And similar to what you were just saying, at least the parents who I've spoken with have really taken this on as like, a burden that is theirs to solve, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. my responsibility to not let this happen or how can I prevent this from happening? And I think a lot of the times, I don't know if this um, is how you see it happening, but a lot of the times that might lead parents down the route of, well, maybe we'll just not keep this food in the house or Mm -hmm. maybe we'll just eat less of this. And maybe they're not using overtly diety language, but Mm -hmm it's implied if that makes sense. So I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to, I I think we've already normalized why that happens, right? Very well-intentioned and that no one wants their child to be bullied, but maybe could you speak to the potential harm or harms multiple in going down that route of, well, maybe we'll just eat less of that and more than that, or even putting a child on a diet, like take this however you'd you'd like, but um, maybe we'll talk about the harms for a moment. Yeah, I think that's really important. So we know that the number one predictor for future eating disorder risk is childhood dieting. And I think when people hear that, they immediately think like really restrictive dieting, like sending your kid to quote fat camp or, you know, celery sticks at every meal or something Mm -hmm. extreme. But I think the research is starting to show that dieting means a lot of different things to kids. And really what we're talking about is restrictive messaging around food and bodies, which can take many different forms. And it can be quite subtle. It can definitely be mom's no longer buying this certain food that I love. And she substituted this other food that I love a lot less. And that doesn't fill me up the same way. And it doesn't feel satisfying. And I really miss that other food, but I'm not allowed to have it. 
And, you know, the way that that then a child will take that message, that sort of very subtle, like mom just made this small change. Mom thinks that that was a quote, healthy swap or a healthy change to make, but the child feels cut off from something that they crave and they feel restricted. And now they feel like they can't trust their own hunger for that food. There's something bad about that hunger for that food, but they also still have that feeling they need help navigating. So it can definitely manifest in these subtle ways. And when parents you know, what parents very often do in an effort not to shame their child is use health or being healthy as a euphemism for weight. Mm -hmm. And kids are just too smart for that. Kids know what you're saying. (laughs) You know, I think we all know what that means. When people say I'm getting healthy, they mean I'm getting smaller genes, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's not health. And so, you know, kids figure that out really easily. And so, I think it's very important to take a step back from anything that feels like you are taking on more control around your child's food, Mm -hmm. because the harm from that can just, it it can be extremely damaging. We know that kids who are restricted in this way, number one, they don't crave, it it doesn't stop the craving for the food you've taken away. Mm -hmm. When you take away a food like that, you only increase the fixation on it. And then when kids do have access to that food, they're probably going to eat more of it, eat more of it in a less regulated way. They're going to feel sort of frantic about it. Now you've added all this power and emotion to the food that maybe wasn't even there before. And then we also know that, yeah, kids who are restricted, there's the eating disorder risk. There's, you know, body image struggles become worse. There's, you know, it's associated with a whole host of outcomes, mental health issues, um, without improving any of the physical health stuff that your sort of starting point of being concerned about is. So yeah, there's just a whole ripple effect of things that are easily avoided by not going the restriction route. Yeah. It's like, like I mentioned earlier, the, the intention to want to protect or maybe safeguard a child from bullying, whatever it might be is, is pure, is there. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, with everything that you just said, we can see that the, very, very likely long-term impacts. Um, the costs of that do not, do not outweigh the benefits. Did I, you know, you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I I might've said that, but, um, yeah, there was the one thing that you mentioned earlier. Oh, you mentioned to, um, kind of just encourage people to look out for any way they might be trying to increase control around Mm -hmm. their, their child's eating. Um, I think that's a wonderful red flag to look out for. And at the same time, I can imagine if any parents who are listening to this episode are also kind of like in the throes of their own really challenged relationship with food, I can imagine that's really hard for them to do in their own relationship with food. Mm -hmm. So hearing, hearing someone like yourself say, you know, look out for ways you might be trying to control or restrict your child. I don't know. I'm just envisioning people being like, how am I supposed to do that with my child? If I have a really hard time giving myself permission to eat these foods or not feeling out of control around those foods myself. So would you maybe have, um, I don't know if a tip is the right way to phrase it, but Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts for someone in getting started in this process in, you know, creating a more positive environment around food and decentering weight from the conversation at home. Like what's maybe one to two good points to start at, if that makes sense. Well, one thing we should say is 
you know, removing control around food doesn't mean that food is just a total free for all kids are eating any time of day. They want any eating, anything they want. That is also not safe for kids. Like that is too much freedom. It's more responsibility than they're ready for. Kids need to feel like caregivers are feeding them. Like that's really fundamental to the the child caregiver relationship. So they need to feel that care that comes with a caregiver having some structure and making sure that they're fed well. Um, so you do retain structure in the sense that you are in charge of how often kids eat and you are in charge of what foods are served at different meals and snack times, but your responsibility is about making sure there is enough food and making sure that kids can eat their fill. It's not about making sure they're only making quote healthy choices. And I think that's some of the nuance where parents are like, Mm -hmm. I'm in charge of what's served. So I have to make sure every meal is healthy. No, your job is to make sure that kids can then take the food you're, you're offering them and eat as much as they want of the foods you're offering. And that may mean they don't eat any of the salad and they eat three servings of the pasta and that is fine. Um, and that they can then regulate for themselves what they need to get out of every meal and snack. And so when you start to sort of shift your thinking away from health and over to more like, are they getting enough to eat? And are they satisfied at meals? And are meals a point of connection and comfort for our family? That right there can be really healing often mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. And the other thing I would say is like, in whatever way feels safe to you, like challenge yourself to let your child eat as much as they want of a food that you feel anxious about. Um, And that can be really scary. And, you know, if you're working with a care, any kind of like therapist or dietitian, like certainly have your team involved in supporting you through this or have your partner involved in supporting you through this. But it is often so cathartic for parents to see that their kids, when given free access when you were having cookies every day after school for snack and cookies are just part of the the wallpaper of snack time. It's not like this thing that we've been forbidden to eat and now we can finally eat, but it's just like, yep, every day you can have cookies. That's fine. You're going to see your child be like happy about cookies, but in a very happy, balanced, like non-frenetic, non-stressed out way. And they're not going to need to eat the entire bag. They may sometimes eat more than you quote think they should, But they may also sometimes be like, one bite is enough and I'm not really interested in this cookie anymore. And that is like mind blowing for a lot of us to see our kids do because it's been so long since we felt that kind of freedom around food. So I think that's such a helpful experience when parents have that, they then are like, oh, oh, okay. Like I can trust my child's body. And if you can trust your child's body, you can trust your own body. And that is also so powerful. Yeah. That's so interesting. That example that you just gave. And I can imagine again, I've never had this experience myself, but I can imagine and observing how your child interacts with food, especially if it's a food that you've had a lot of fear or rules around and seeing how they can regulate their intake of that food over time. It has to just be a cool learning experience, right? Like learning from your child in in that way. And I, I really appreciate too, what you said before, how you paused for a moment to add clarification on that whole concept of like the division of responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you added that in there because um, yeah, I think that's very important that we make clear that it's not a total free-for-all. There is some structure and the child still deserves to feel safe and that there is food available. We're going to have meal time, but it's just, um, yeah, giving them the responsibility of they choose what to eat and how much Mm -hmm. when it is placed within that timeframe. So exactly. thank you for clarifying on that. Yeah, (laughs) no, absolutely. It's tricky. It's such a great framework, but 
because this subject is so emotional and so fraught for people, it's very easy to sort of hear the framework once and then like think you're implementing it and then like immediately panic when it feels like it's going wrong. So, you know, I just think it takes practice and it takes really thinking that through. Like, actually, my goal is to nourish my kids, is to make them feel safe around food, help them trust their bodies. And when you reframe your goal, when you really are redefining what healthy eating is in that way, Mm -hmm. then it becomes much easier to navigate you know, yes, we can have this particular food for snack every day for a month because that's what they're really obsessed with right now. And I don't need to feel anxious about that. That's just a normal thing that three-year-olds get really into that kind of food or whatever. Yeah. I love that idea of um, reframing the goal and also reframing what quote unquote healthy eating means, especially Mm -hmm. in the context of your family, right? Because that's probably going to mean something a little bit different for everyone's family. So kind of having that definition within your family and, you know, reframing the the goal or the intention behind that. I can see that being really important. Um, One other topic, and this is going to be a, not a total 180 of conversation, but on a slightly different vein here, but uh, I wanted to ask you for any thoughts or, or tips you might have when it comes to parents talking to maybe their child's doctor about weight. Um, maybe we can start there and we'll, we'll go beyond, but if they maybe have an interaction with a physician, with a doctor where weight is brought up and maybe it's being implied kind of like you were saying earlier that your child is quote unquote, not where they're supposed to be, or they, you need to watch what you're feeding them. Like any of those things, how Mm -hmm. might they navigate that situation? Well, the first thing I always advise is if your kids are old enough to like take in that conversation and you're worried about that coming up, I would call the doctor ahead of time, call the doctor's office, talk to the receptionist, write a note you can hand over at check-in and just say, it's really important to me that we don't discuss weight or BMI in front of my child. I'm happy to have this conversation with you privately. That's completely within your rights as a parent and an advocate for your child to do to just say like, this conversation doesn't need to happen in front of my kid. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's just so much. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I have interviewed about their struggles with eating that date it back to something a pediatrician said when they were 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And so, and for some reason, 10 years old is often the age where these comments come up. I think it's because it's like on the verge of puberty for a lot of kids. And so it's when growth often increases and pediatricians take note. So anyway, Um, especially if you have a 10 year old going to the doctor, maybe just ask not to talk about weight. Of course, that's not always going to work. Not every doctor is going to respect the request or you forgot to bring the note, whatever. So if it does come up anyway, um, and your doctor is starting to articulate some of those concerns, you can say something like, I'm not worried about my child's body, or I trust my child's body. If you can just insert into your children's hearing that you trust their body, that can be really powerful in reframing their experience of the doctor's comments. Mm -hmm. You can say, you know, I'm not worried about how we're eating as a family. I feel pretty good about our family eating right now. I feel pretty good about how meal times are going and I'm going to trust her body to grow how it needs to grow. And I would be shocked if most pediatricians like who have a heart in their body (laughs) wouldn't hear that (laughs) and sort of like take the cue to step off a little bit and reframe. Um, You know, if they really push it, that's a sign that you need to consider a new pediatrician because they're not hearing what you're as a parent communicating to them is important to you. 
Um, you know, and you maybe need to be even more explicit and say, you know, I'm more concerned about the risks of eating disorders at this age. So I'm not going to focus on weight as a negative. I'm not going to worry about controlling eating. I'm really worried about keeping her safe or keeping him safe from this other issue that I see so many of their peers struggling with. That might be some language to use in middle school years, you know, as kids are older and these issues are more um, pronounced. Um, but even with little kids, I think it's never too early for a kid to hear their mom or dad say, you know what, I really trust their body to grow how it needs to grow. Um, and, you know, if the pediatrician really pushes it, yeah, again, that might be a sign to have a different pediatrician. Um, you also always have the option if the conversation doesn't go well in the moment, maybe you get nervous, you feel flustered, you know, there's lots of reasons doctors have a lot of power, it can feel really awkward. You can follow up with your kid afterwards and say, hey, I know Dr. So-and-so had concerns about your weight. I just want you to know we are not worried about that. We trust your body to be doing what it needs to do. If you have any concerns, I am here to talk about them. And just, you know, there's always that opportunity for that second conversation to kind of clarify what happened, answer questions and see where your kid is with it. I can imagine from the kid's perspective, I am, um, you know, I obviously we're all kids at one point, my memory can sometimes be fuzzy, but I can imagine, especially at that age, trusting your parents so much and valuing so much what they say and the example that they set in, in hearing that from a parent, from the kid's perspective of, I trust your body, or we are not worried about that, or we are confident in, in how we're eating meals together as a family. I can imagine that is so reassuring for the child to hear because they do, I can imagine, hold your, your opinion in such a high place that that just has to be soothing in that moment, I bet. I think so. And I think it's unfortunate that pediatricians are so trained to fixate on weight because pediatricians should also be someone that children trust and feel safe yeah. with. And yeah. we shouldn't be in this position of like the sort of adversarial relationship over this topic. But if it's going to come down to it, like what I care about is what my kid takes away from the conversation, not what the doctor takes away from the conversation. So what I want my kid to hear is that I'm not worried about her body. I trust her. I trust her around food. I know she can, you know, handle eating and yeah, all of that. And so I think it is really reassuring to kids and, you know, it may lead to needing to have more conversations. It may just be a one, it's not never a one and done with this topic, right. but it's a good starting point. I think, uh, I think if this conversation has made me aware of anything, it is the fact that I would love to come and share a meal with you and your family, because I can uh -huh. imagine that's <laughs> it's you quite are, the fun environment. <laughs> you are underestimating um, how much my three-year-old uh, has opinions about food and how much she even sits at the table is a moving target question many right. nights. Well, sometimes we're a work in progress. At, yeah. Sometimes I don't like sitting at the table either. Either We all have our own opinions. So maybe she and I could, you know, bounce some ideas <laughs> off of each other. <laughs> It is fun though. Yeah. Family meals well, are definitely a good time. <laughs> yeah. Well, Virginia, it has been so great speaking with you. I, um, like I hinted at earlier in the conversation, I selfishly feel like I have learned a ton from you. So thank you so much for being here and answering my questions and sharing your thoughts and expertise with us all. Um, I'd love to provide a, a couple of moments or however long you need here for you to plug anything you're working on, where people can find your work, like anything that you would like to uh, give some airtime to. 
Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. Um, Yeah. If folks want to find more of my work, the best place to go is my newsletter, Burnt Toast. It's just virginiasoulsmith.substack.com. And you can subscribe there. There's free, there's paid options, whatever you're up for. Um, And feel free to send me questions because I do pretty much every other week tackle a parent Q&A. And then about once a month, I do a podcast episode where I do like a bunch of Q&As at once. So, um, you know, you can always send me stuff you're struggling with around these issues. Um, And I also just write essays and do reporting on this topic all the time. So if you've got stuff that you're like, someone needs to talk about this weird diet, like send it my way. That's what I do. Um, So yeah, that's burnt toast. And then you know, I'm also, I hang out on Instagram a lot at, um, it's at V underscore soulsmith. And that's also my handle on Twitter. So yeah, come say hi. Yeah. And we will, uh, we'll be sure to have all of that linked in the show notes and we'll put the title of your books. Oh yeah. Thanks. I always forget the book. book. Yes. (laughs) You write things beyond. Yes. uh, (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, the book is called the eating instinct that's out now. And then my new book will not be out until 2023. That's called fat kid phobia. So again, if you sign up for my newsletter, then you'll get all the updates about that as well when it's coming out. So long story short, get in with the newsletter and then we'll get all of the information we need from there. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Yes. Okay. Uh, Well, again, thank you so much for being here for all of my listeners. Thank you for joining Virginia and I for this conversation, but that is all we have for today. So we're going to go ahead and sign off by saying yours, Julie, Claire, and Virginia. And there you have it, my friend. That is our show. Thank you so, so much for being here for episode 144 on the Yours Truly podcast with our very special guest, Virginia Soulsmith. Virginia, if you are listening, I owe you a huge thank you for offering your time and expertise and for being willing to come on to the show. I hope you as a listener not only learn from today's episode, but you will go and seek out Virginia's books and her newsletters and all that she has going on so you can continue learning from her. I know I am. But as always, if you enjoyed today's episode or anything else that you've ever heard here on the Yours Truly podcast, it would mean so much if you could take a couple of moments and tap those five stars and leave a review. That is, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, if you are listening elsewhere, so something like Spotify or SoundCloud, you can also spread the love and share about the show by taking a screenshot of today's episode and sharing it on your social media platform of choice. If you do so, especially if you're putting something on your Instagram story, for example, you can always give me a tag at Claire Tuning so I can say hey and drop into your DMs and give you a personal thank you for listening. But that is all we have for today's show. I will be seeing you back here next Wednesday for another new episode of the podcast. But until then, take care and we'll talk soon.